Let's go! A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. You know, in all this time, I haven't had a single person ask me right. who yes. it is at the end of that who says, you know, the American people, I think, is good people. Do you know who that is? Uh, I'm going to say, and I could be wrong, it's a shot, Don DeLuise's father. <laughs> no. What was, it, what, was, what was his name? What was his first name? Don DeLuise's Mr. father. De- Mr. DeLuise. <laughs> To you, it was Mr. DeLuise. I called him Bob. God, that makes me want to go back and watch some of the Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise movies <laughs> from the 70s, early 80s. Man. Yeah. Great. East, yeah, yeah. Get the, what the, was the, the uh, Smoking the Bandit, baby. What was the, one, what was the one where Dom DeLuise kept trying to commit suicide and Burt Reynolds oh, was trying to stop him? Do you remember? God. Uh, I'm not even going to bother IMDb, no. but I am going to try and find that movie and watch it. I haven't seen that since <laughs> I was a kid. It's funny when I was a kid. Oh, uh do you know who it is? Seriously, have you got a guess no, or anything? No, no, it's, no. It's it's um, it's Fidel Castro. Oh, before um, puberty, got it. Right. <laughs> the I think that was when he uh, went to New York to speak at the United Nations uh, just after the revolution, before mm. the whole uh, you know economic sanctions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. When he he threw the first pitch, I think, of a Yankees game or something. Uh, oh wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah. La- wow. First and last time Fidel yeah. Castro was yeah. invited to New York. I thought you were going to say he threw a shoe, but that's a different... Different guy. Different guy. Hey, we're back, Ray, after a we couple are. of weeks off. Yes. Uh, this is the. F- I mean, I, it may not be uh, evident to those of you listening because we put out the uh, Douglas right. Follett show last week, but we recorded that a month ago. This is our first time back recording any podcast. We've taken two weeks off, which is... right. My God, I, I didn't know what to do with myself for those no, two weeks, man. No. I had my nights my nights free. I was right. literally just wandering around <laughs> in a daze, bumping right. into things. Well, I did know what to do. Sadly, it only took two minutes. But for the rest of the two weeks, I was I was I was equally confused. I, from what I could tell, it was just drinking mostly. <laughs> what you well, did uh, a bit, a bit. Well, I think uh, there's a there's a there's a fair and logical way to do this. Let's compare right. each other's. Let's compare our notes for today's show. And the right. person who has the okay. most notes is All on top. Right. The person okay. who has the least notes All right. is on okay. bottom. Now, mm-hmm. I'm, I know it might be a close run thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let me put mine out there first. I have six and a half index cards. <laughs> One page is the title. The last card says the end. I saw your notes but the a couple meat, of days ago. They were more like post-it notes. But the meat, but the meat is the four po- the uh, four index cards in the middle. 
not both sides, but it's in there. Well, let's get into it. Episode okay. 13, I think this is, of the Cold War show. It is good to yes. be back. Uh, I'm very excited about what we're going to be talking about today. One thing we are going to try and do towards the end, we've got our first DEFCON 2 question from nice. James Hingley. So uh, for people that haven't caught up with this, one of the, the perks that I put in there is if you're a DEFCON 2 subscriber, you get to ask send us a question, which we will attempt uh, to answer mm-hmm. on the show. If you're a DEFCON 3 uh, subscriber, big, big you, you get to jump on uh, Skype uh, <laughs> or, or Google Hangout and actually chat with us for a while. Yes. Do like yes. a half hour one-on-one meet and Chat. greet. Yeah. Um, but this is the the first and only, I should say, Defcon, Defcon 2 question we've had from James Hingley. And he's asked us to Thank talk you, a little bit about Brexit. Yeah. But uh, we will leave that to the end of the show. Yeah. yeah. We'll look at our crystal reviews. ball and tell you what's going to happen. We've got some great reviews to read. We've got some great uh, heroes to uh, thank so anyway let's get into it I also just before I go I want to plug yeah, our forum I set plug up a it. forum a year or so ago um, for our other podcast it doesn't get used a lot but I think this is a show where it might get used more I think there's a lot of more room, more room for uh, free and open debate Facebook's fine but you know Facebook threads come and go and disappear in news feeds right. and, and they get long and they get sort of hard to hard to navigate sometimes so if you want to join our forum, go to thepodcastnetwork.com slash vanilla, as in vanilla, vanilla ice, as in stop, collaborate, <laughs> and listen. Ice is back with a brand new invention, something takes a hold of me what? tightly. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, yeah. shit, I saw Vanilla Ice perform that song live almost to the day... Wow. Five years ago. And I know that because tomorrow is my wedding anniversary and Chrissy and I saw Vanilla Ice on our wedding night. Wow. It doesn't get any better. I know. In Las Vegas. And, oh, it does get better than that. It was in Las Vegas (laughs) and we didn't have to pay because we stood outside and watched through the windows (laughs) with about 100 other people and we danced and it was... Aw, that's romantic. Um, So, uh, before we get into the, 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 the get up all in the guts of uh, right. today's episode, speaking of Vegas. Right. Um, <laughs> That's the bowels, but go ahead. <laughs> I wanted to close off on economics, Ray. Yes. I know yes. we did three plus hours of economics. Right. and I only But it's really, the key to everything, so. It is, yeah. It is. I only realized, though, uh, uh, during the last week that that I left a key component of the economic argument. (laughs) Which, yes, tell me more. (laughs) So you were watching the news and you went, hang on. (laughs) Yeah. So I forgot to talk about one of the most obvious uh, economic drivers of a war economy, and that's the media. Mm. Silly, silly me. And I'm surprised nobody sent me an email and chastised me for this, but thank you if you thought of it and decided. I think that was Martin Darling. What's his name? Martin Darlington? Martin Darlington, name? yeah. It, it's his job to it follow is. up. Yeah. Same on him. So, you know, of course, the media loves itself a war. It makes for scary headlines. Yeah. Um, it also loves itself a Republican National Convention for the same reason. <laughs> 
I oh think lots God. of lots of scary uh, yeah. uh, quotes and a lot Drama, of fear coming out of the yeah. RNC this year. Um, I saw Rudy Giuliani get up there and rant and rave. I've I've met Rudy Giuliani. I had a mm-hmm. cigar with Rudy Giuliani. I don't was it calmer then? He was lovely, absolutely lovely. He was in Brisbane about four or five, four or five years ago when I was running the Cigar Lounge and um, I got a phone call from a limo driver that I knew. Nice. And he said, uh, this is like at seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night. He says, mate, just picked up Rudy Giuliani and uh, a couple of his guys from the security firm that he runs. And they're at dinner at a very famous Brisbane uh, restaurant. Which you're going to take me to. Oh, yeah, totally, man. Um, And he said, look, uh, they want to have a cigar afterwards, but they don't have any. And I said, I'd sort them out. Can you bring me down some cigars? And he said, they can't be Cuban because Rudy won't smoke a Cuban because of the whole embargo bullshit. Principled. I said, that's all right. My my cigars are all Nicaraguan anyway. So I drove to to the uh, cigar lounge, stacked a portable suitcase humidor with cigars (laughs) <laughs> drove down to this restaurant. Was in, you know, went and said, "I'm looking for uh, Rudy Giuliani." They took me at the back, sat down, um, gave him and his guys some cigars. So, you know, on my treat, um, yeah. And and for no other look, and uh, you know, I have I'm no fan of the Republican Party, but yeah, I, I read his book, which was interesting when it came out, the leadership book. But mm-hmm. uh, really, you know, during 9/11, I guess I think everyone around the world. Looked at yeah. Rudy during nine eleven and went, you know, that's a hard yeah. fucking job, man. Standing right. up, at least sympathy and empathy. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, it wasn't sympathy and empathy. It was respect. You know, it was. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. He he stood up when George Bush was in hiding in his bunker. Uh, <laughs> Rudy stood up in his strategically town, retreated, and uh, you know took control of the situation at least from a media perspective, right? Which is people, important. Kept people calm. Right. Got the place moving, went on Letterman, I remember, a week or so later and said, look, it's okay to laugh. Uh, we need to right, get back to that. life and all that kind of stuff. So for no other reason than that, I gave him a few cigars. I sat down and lit one and had a smoke with Rudy Giuliani and we talked about the world. So that was that was good. It was a good night. Cool. That was worth it. Yeah, yeah. But then he goes on the RNC thing and sounds like a complete fucking nutbag. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, I used to have a photo of me and him up on the wall. I can't, I don't have it up anymore. Right. Anyway, uh, the media. Yes. So, scary headlines, fear cells. Um, yeah. And there, there are studies that back this up. It's not just uh, a lefty conspiracy theory about the media. Right. People's interest yeah. in the news is much more intense when there's a perceived threat to their way of life. Yeah. Do you think that people feel like they're the more informed they are when there is a perceived threat, the more they have the ability to protect themselves as in powers knowledge or at the very least just to know what the hell is going on, even though there might not be anything you can do about it, but you're going to feel the need to keep up on things when your way of life or your very life is being threatened. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Totally. They, they, they want to be in control. They want to have as much information as possible. And so they they read papers, they listen to the radio, they watch the news, they listen to talk back, they do all that kind of stuff to try and get analysis of what's going on and options and whatever. But they they, uh, they tune in uh, more intensely in times of war and disaster. In fact, uh, Pew Research did a study where they looked at two decades of American news preferences as self-reported by Americans. 
mm-hmm. and it, it was quite extensive. They they looked at 165 separate surveys done by some sort of um, news mm. association body, I think, over 20 years. 165 separate surveys from over 20 years, nearly 200,000 adult Americans interviewed, and they Mm -hmm. asked them what they cared about when it came to news. And interestingly, they found that over the course of 20 years, people's interests have remained remarkably similar. Uh, the, the, The key things that people are interested in are war, weather, disaster, money, and crime. Mm. Celebrity gossip, surprisingly, doesn't rate very highly. You what about... I was, I was sure you were going to say sports. Yeah, well, I think sports is a... Uh, it's up there, but it's not in the, not in the top five. Right, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, sports is one of those things I think people read for fun, but uh, when there's war or disasters yeah. or cyclones coming, those sorts of things take... You want to know. Yeah, yeah, you want to know. Exactly. Okay. And in theory, when readership or viewership or listenership goes up, so do advertising revenues. If you Ah. have more people watching, more people listening, more people paying attention, you can charge more for your ads or you can sell more ad space. We all understand, of course, that... Sorry, that's the Martin Darlington rule. I hope people all (laughs) understand that the, the media is a business... It's really right. in the business of connecting advertisers to people. That's the purpose of the media, leaving out you know, the, the government-owned uh, media organisations or, or purely um, privately funded media organisations like The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And in the first case, we have the ABC in Australia or SBS. They're, they're non-commercial government supporters and BBC in England and, and, and right. PBS, I think, in the, in the US. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, we, they are commercial businesses. They, they don't exist for the sake of producing news. They exist for the sake of, of selling ads and making money. And the content is just something they have to have there to bring <laughs> in the audience so they can make the money. Right. And so in times of war, the th- you know, at least in theory, and it's hard to, to get data to verify this. I spent some time trying to verify it, and I really couldn't um, with the time that I had. But you would assume that advertising revenues would spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the flip side to that is in times of great tumult, uh, yeah. businesses tend to hold on to their money. They're not sure what's going on. Uh, you know, there, there could be um, major changes to the economy, so maybe they don't spend as much. So it's a little bit grey, but at least in theory, well, in reality, viewership numbers uh, go up. So you, you would try to use that to, to sell more advertising. Newspapers, yeah. and, and I'm sure everyone knows, uh, except maybe Martin Darlington, but newspapers are doing it hard <laughs> around the world. Uh, a lot of yeah. them have gone under. Over the last five years, uh, a lot of them are losing money. Uh, A a lot of them have... There's been mergers and acquisitions. Like Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, bought the Washington Post, that that old, venerated newspaper in America, got Mm -hmm. bought by a dot-com startup guy. That tells you... That's your sign right there. I think how much things have changed. Yeah, yeah. The internet basically crushed the business model of newspapers. So any chance they have to spike their readership numbers, they'll take. Yeah. 
And in television, I guess things have... Sorry, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to add to that because I was doing some search on uh, uh, defensejournal.com. They were talking about how patriotic merchandise, like you buy uh, flags or if you buy... um, a shirt with stars and stripes or guns or shells or something showing something exploding, whatever that, that merchandise equally goes up um, during times of war or whatever. But when it, when it got to the um, news, it, it pretty much is pretty much saying what you said. It said war is good for media business, despite the excessive cost of sending correspondence for coverage, using extensive satellite equipment and airtime armed conflict is precisely the type of event on which media thrives. And of course, the first casualty of a war is the truth. So they're there to capture your attention, to keep you hooked as long as they possibly can until the next set of commercials comes up, because that's where they're really making their money. Yeah, but of course, we all know that as as big a societal influence as the media industry is, it's really the guys selling flags with the stars and stripes that right. are really the people behind uh, the permanent war economy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I cannot describe this. Let me try to describe this. When I was down at the beach, you know, North Carolina, um, pretty pretty solid uh, uh, redneck area where I was at. There, someone had a spare tire in the back of their jeep, but instead of instead of the bars of the flag, it had shells, and instead of the stars, it had like bullet holes it was the most and i've seen a lot of this stuff but i've never seen this i've seen a lot of this stuff because i'm in virginia and we drive to north carolina that was the most offensive version of the flag i have ever seen and that is saying something does that make sense i mean just it was all about military and death and shells and to have a strong america accurate yeah yeah but that that doesn't mean it's not offensive to people who don't think like that but anyway i just wanted to throw that out yeah, the whole. F- I, I may have mentioned this before on the show. I'm not sure, but um, whenever I go to the U.S. and I see flags uh, at the front of houses or in New York, yeah. they're hanging hanging out of windows. Right. It's uh, freaky as shit to me because <laughs> that does not happen here. Although, yeah, the, the Murdoch media have been trying to drive that on Australia Day, January 26th. Over the last uh, sort of five or ten years, uh, so people, really? will, you know, will get an Australia Day, an Australian flag in the paper, Murdoch papers, and you know they'll stick them in their window of their car, and mm. everyone else drives past and goes, yeah. "You fucking idiot! What are you doing?" <laughs> um, but I, we don't, we don't do that. The flags yeah. at the front of buildings here uh, generally are at the front of maybe a government building, but that's right where they belong. House, yeah. but that's about I mean, it. I'm no less loyal. I'm no less uh, a lover of my country with all its imperfections. But I don't need to go the extra 10 steps of hanging a flag out. You you can't say that I don't care about my country as much as you do just because you have a flag. I don't need to wear it on my sleeve. But people who have the flags tend to have that philosophy. If you're not putting it out there, then you're ashamed or you're a traitor. It's just for all of them. It's 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 abs- it's uh, extremes. It's nothing but extremes. It's all or nothing. And that's not the way life and most things work. I just I just don't need to, to put it out there for everybody to see. You know, um, we won't get into it, but you know, I think we've talked about it before. I think this whole idea of love your country is retarded. Love oh, your country, right or wrong. My country, right or wrong. The what, famous jurist. What do, you, what do you love? The dirt? I mean, yeah. what is it? What is a country? Is it the dirt? Right. Is it? What is it? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I'm glad I was born in Australia. I think I was mm-hmm. lucky to be born in Australia. I think there are some great things about living in Australia. I also think there are some bad things uh, in yeah, our history. And that's and reality. We do. 
And I don't. Yeah. But I, w- I would never say I love my country. It's just a. Re- it's like saying I love my lamp. It's a retarded <laughs> statement that that is completely. And you drill down with people, and they tend not to have any idea what they're actually saying. But anyway, yeah. let's go. On. Let's so go. Fo- I was going to talk about Fox News, of course. Yeah. Um, if we want to talk about fear mongering and supporting uh, war, there's no better example. Probably in the world than Fox News. They launched in 1996, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, five years before the US embarked on what I think is the most costly series of wars in their history. Yeah. And then, not surprisingly, perhaps surpassed CNN as the number one cable network in 2002, mm-hmm. not long after the 9 11 attacks and the ramp up for, well, after the invasion of Afghanistan, the ramp up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Right. And of course, the announcement, uh, the news today, yeah, is that Woo! Roger Ailes, who yeah. was the, the 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 founder of Fox News, it's owned by Rupert and, and, and News Corporation, but Roger Ailes right. was the guy, the data digger, yeah, former GOP political operative uh, in various, I think Nixon and, and Reagan uh, and GW GHWB administrations. Yeah, he has uh, quit Fox News over the sexual harassment yeah. allegations that Gretchen Carlson uh, has sue- is suing them yeah. over. Well, now it's up to 20 women who have come forward. Uh, and, and as a man who has four daughters, let me just say 20 women? Short, 20 women. That's what I read uh, today in the news. You're not confusing him with Bill Cosby. No, no, that was 120. No, uh, no, th- no, this was uh, 20. But here's, so a man who, this, this guy right here, I'm pointing my thumbs at myself, has got four daughters. It only takes one brave woman to come forward to make an accusation. And if it is true, it's probably true for other women and the rest will follow you. So just when you, when you meet scumbags like this, someone's got to take the first step and you bring down someone who deserves to be brought down because for all the women who said no to him, how many said yes and had to live with it? So it's just it's just a scumbag who de- who deserves to be you know kicked out a long time ago. And if you see a photo of this guy, he's yeah not, you're not going to uh, get turned on. Yeah, yeah, no. Jabber the hut in a three piece Jab- suit, man. You're like, Jabber yeah. the hut when he was a bit younger in in his slim <laughs> days. Yeah, yeah. Well, not that much slimmer. <laughs> no, no, relative speak. Relative anyway, speak. so that's, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I, I don't expect Fox News is going to change direction dramatically as a result of this, but um, the guy who's been the the leading light and um, yeah. the the moral uh, guidestone, if if you want to call it that, yeah. uh, the visionary behind Fox we News go. has finally quit. Rupert Murdoch, of course, though, uh, for people who don't know anything about Murdoch, he's, of course, an Aussie. Uh, his father was a newspaper journalist who became an editor, quite famous in Australia uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, owned a very small newspaper when he passed away in 1956 called the Adelaide Advertiser, which mm-hmm. Rupert inherited and turned it into a global behemoth empire. Went to England first, uh, built an empire in England on tabloid newspapers, and then went to the United States uh, mm. and um, started with the New York Post, I think, another tabloid newspaper. First right. first thing that he did is get Ed Koch, the uh, mayor of New York, elected, and then went on to, to 
build uh, Fox uh, Fox Cable Network and Fox News. Mm. Um, he's made a career out of fear and scandal, and Fox uh, News is just the latest iteration of that. If you want to read a great book about Murdoch and the creation and, and his American Empire. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend a book called The Man Who Owns the News by Michael Wolfe with two yeah. Fs. I read this sitting in uh, Yosemite, I think, mm. National Park, or it might have been the Grand Canyon, one of the two a few years ago. Excellent book that talks about how when Murdoch first went to the US in the 70s, uh, the sort of the New York elite just laughed at him and thought, "Oh, here's another cowboy. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna pick the pick the flesh right. off his bones and leave him in the desert." And uh, how, how wrong they were to uh, to yeah. not take him seriously. Follow up question: um, You were in the Grand Canyon or someplace equally impressive, and you were reading a book. It was at nighttime around a campfire. Oh, okay, all right, understood. <laughs> with, with a cigar. Ah. Yeah. With a cigar, see that makes yeah, it okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. So, so quick question. So, I guess the other. Sorry, before you, go, you can yeah, get that yeah. book on our new oh. bookstore on a coldwar.com. If you go nice. to coldwar.com, you'll see a, a, a link to our bookstore, and I, we've I've put about uh, 20, 25 books related to the Cold War, mostly that I'm using as my sources, and right. um, Ray put uh, a. a I think there's a link to a Wikipedia page. Wikipedia and YouTube. Thank you. And, um, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Cobalt.com. Sorry, yeah. go no, ahead. J- just, just a quick question. And the other obvious connection is between not only the, these uh, people who have a lot of money who own um, news agencies or they own corporations that own news agencies, obviously they have a sincere interest in what happens as far as war, not war, um, scaring, that kind of stuff. So it, it I mean, that's the other part of it that's so obvious you, you don't even want to mention. But, yeah, if I own a news media corporation and I am hobnobbing with the, certain senators and stuff like that, I mean, I'm going to be in the know and I'm going to know what's going on because these people are going to talk to me. I'm going to donate. But it's just this good old boys network that, as far as I can tell, is never, ever going to change. And if, you, and if you're, you know, you're rich, you're going to be talking to the right people. You're probably going to have stock in some armament uh, company. And it's just, how could they possibly be objective when they have interests spread out in so many different areas of the United States economy? Yeah, and I think it even, it, it goes deeper than that too. Um, they, they they have all these networks and this old boys network. And they also, if you're a wealthy person or... or and corporation with investment arms they have literal investments in other organizations some of which are going to be involved in the military and weapon supply and reconstruction and all of those things so they have direct financial ties to other businesses that Mm -hmm. profit out of war but if you look at the way the media works uh, you know and I, i don't have a lot of evidence to to back this up so i'm going to preface this by saying this is just my gut feeling and assumption uh, based on watching this happen. But quite often I think the media can help drive us into a war. You think about it, if, mm-hmm. if there's a suggestion that maybe this country is a threat or we, this country is 
you know, uh, invading their neighbours or threatening their neighbours, and 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 there's a suggestion that we should go in there and uh, support them, or, or support their neighbours, or, or take down right. this this threat. The more the media ramps that up and increases the escalates the the temperature of the public debate by mm-hmm. putting it on the front page every day or devoting lots of minutes of of radio or, uh, or television airtime to it it increases the the public interest in this and and people start forming very strong emotional opinions over what should happen and they they're taking their cues from the media at some point, uh, an opportunistic politician from lower in the ranks of a party right. uh, jumps upon this as their opportunity to get some primetime media coverage, which, of course, politicians are always looking for because politicians mm-hmm. need to build their brand with their demographic uh, as much as any business does because come election time, they... they, they yeah. want people to know who they are and what they stand for. So some opportunistic op- uh, politicians will jump on it and start beating the war drums, which then gets covered by the media, which increases <laughs> the, right. uh, the the temperature of the whole thing. And eventually, the government of the day needs to uh, comment on this and, and start to... Uh, either say yay or nay in terms of their own position on it and if they say nay or they're seeming a little bit weak about it then of course the media will jump on them as being a bunch of pussies and And their their, opponents will as well yeah their opposition jump on them and then the media Mm -hmm. will run that story and it's easy in theory anyway to see how the media can drive us into war to a very large extent it reminds me of that old line in uh, Citizen Kane where uh, Orson Welles, as Kane says to his uh, reporter who's down in Cuba, you provide the photographs, I'll provide the war. <laughs> Which, because uh, he was saying there's no, ev- there's no evidence that there's going to be a, an American-Spanish uh, war uh, over Cuba. And he's like, well, right. you just provide the photographs, I'll provide the war. Now, that's, that's supposedly based on something that Hearst actually said uh, when he was running newspapers, the yellow journalism uh, mm-hmm. around the time of the American-Spanish War. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that Hearst actually played a very big role on the, in, in leading America into that war. But in theory, it's something to be aware of. Uh, I guess, to, just to wrap up this uh, addendum to the economic stuff, War is good for readership, viewership, listenership levels. Therefore, the media love a good war. And it is is at least possible that some of the time the media are ramping up the war drums because it's good for business. Right. And they're just looking at it. Like you said earlier, because of the Internet, the papers are getting creamed. Anything they can do about job protection, you've got to think they're going to seriously consider doing it even if it's not ethical they got to survive just like everyone else and they have to make a buck just like everyone else well that's a good segue speaking about doing whatever it takes to survive let's talk about stalin the misunderstood genius that was stalin (laughs) not not really yeah Yeah. so we're going to leave economics behind and finally get into talking more about 
the sort of the lead up to the Grand Alliance, but we want to start going back a little bit uh, before World War Two and talking about Stalin and how he took control of the Soviet Union, how he took power and became the man that we know, a.k.a. Uncle Joe, the effective dictator of the Soviet Union for nigh on 20 years. Man of steel. Yeah. So, as we mentioned in his bio... What? No, I was just going, because I'm the man of steel. I think I hurt myself. Oh, I thought you were holding something in. or I thought you just sat on something that was, you know... I, I had the decency to put it on mute when I do those things. You're welcome. <laughs> so as we mentioned when we were doing his bio... Oh, before we do the bio, uh, somebody, yeah. I can't remember who, uh, sent us a message over the last week or two saying complaining about the Stalin bio episode because we didn't talk enough about the famines and, you, and um, the Ukraine and how mm-hmm. the famines w- really hit the Ukraine very oh, hard. Yeah. And uh, uh, Holomador, as it's known, I think, and um, his his belief because he has family that uh, that are Ukrainian ah, that uh, right. Stalin directly targeted Ukrainians with the famine to wipe them out. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, look, with the bio episode, I think we, you know we did like an hour, hour and fifteen on Stalin. Not a lot of time to cover the ins and outs of. Yeah. You know, a career that was 40, 45 years uh, in duration, longer, 50 years. Uh, We we had to just do a quick, quick, broad brush stroke. We didn't drill down into that. um, And as I pointed out to this guy, and I'm sorry I can't remember your name off the top of my head, uh, whilst the Ukrainians were hit very, very hard by the famine, um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe there is evidence that he directly targeted the Ukraine except he was pissy that they hadn't been hitting their grain quota and he believed right. it was deliberate. They were trying to, you know, uh, yeah. fight back against the policy of collectivization. And so he may have gone, well, just fuck them. They can starve. But there, yeah. there's not a lot of evidence in the that have come out of the archives to date, as far as I'm aware, that he yeah. deliberately chose to starve 10 million Ukrainians. Yeah. Well, he, he was doing to them what he was doing to everyone else. You know, if you didn't meet it, if the quotas, you know, during the Great Leap Forward, um, you suffered, whether it was starvation or you get thrown into prison, whatever. But uh, if it makes you feel any better, I will be covering that on an upcoming episode. I'm currently going through Stalin's life on World War II podcast. So if you hang on, I'll get to it soon. I hope that makes you feel better. Yeah. Go and listen to Ray's show if you want a, yeah. a de- deeper yeah. bio on Stalin. Yeah. So, as we mentioned, though, in his bio episode, just before Lenin died, he wrote mm-hmm. a famous document known as Lenin's Testament that basically said, Stalin's a cunt, don't let him have any power. <laughs> I think that's the summed up version. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And if Stalin, I could, yeah. Stalin was yeah. all like, Hey, relax, God. I'm just your average Joe. Take a rest. Hey, relax, God. Trust me. Hey, relax, God. I'm going to keep my side of the bargain. Huh? That, just picture that with a Russian accent, and that's pretty much how he responded uh, to, to that testament of Lenin's. Yeah. 
Yeah, but but yeah, you no, I was just I was just going to read out a little bit of uh, Lenin's testament just just to give an idea that it took him a while, and he knew what Stalin was, but it took him a, a while. But then when he realized what Stalin was, he pretty much put it directly. He said, uh, and he, he what it is is he was worried about a split between the party between uh, between Stalin and Trotsky. Uh, he writes, Lenin is uh, excuse me. He writes, uh, Stalin is too rude, and this fault entirely supportable in relations among us will in pieces recreate deals wait shit hold on no fuck shit fuck i skipped my paper oh no he says i'm sorry let me try that again i so i very much apologize stalin is too rude and this fault entirely supportable in relations among us communists believe becomes insupportable in the office of general secretary Therefore, I propose to the comrades to find a way to remove Stalin from that position and appoint it to another man who in all respects differs from Stalin only in superiority, namely more patient, more loyal, more polite, and more attentive to comrades, less capricious. These these circumstances may seem an insignificant tri trifle, but I think from the point of view of preventing a split and from the point of view of relation between Stalin and Trotsky, which I discussed above, it is not a trifle. And this was uh, written by Lenin in, on January 4th, 1923. So he knows what's coming and he's pretty much telling these guys, look, I'm on my deathbed. I'm too old. Get rid of this guy while you can, if you can. Yeah. But Stalin... Alas. Well, yeah, Stalin managed to just play nice with the rest of the uh, Politburo, the Bolshevik leadership, and bided his time uh, yeah. quite cleverly until he saw his opportunity to make his play for the big job. One, one thing he did manage to do was keep himself in control of the N. KVD, the secret police, mm -hmm. um, and you know this this turned out to be a bad idea to let Stalin in control <laughs> for of everybody it. else. He, yeah, he 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 actually had a meeting with the Politburo just after Stalin died, where he made um, quite a quite an impressive, according to the archives, uh, musical a plea for them to take a chance on him. Now here's the, here's the other part for Martin Darlington because he likes details. Not only did Stalin have uh, was in charge of the secret police years ago, they had made him general secretary. So he had he was in charge of the overall day to day operations of the party of the Politburo, the Secretariat. So he would over time appoint men who were loyal to him. So by the time he is beginning to feel threatened, not only does he have the secret police, but he's pretty much got all the, if you will, department heads on his side. So it took him a while, but he put himself into a very powerful position. So either, even though Lenin's letter was pretty damning, he would be able to weather that storm because he had put himself in such a good position. Mm. And he was able to say, look, Lenin had three strokes, no, man. He didn't right. know what he was <laughs> he doing. No I saw a photo the other day of Lennon after his third stroke. Um, yeah, not good. Yeah, not pretty. No. no. Um, so anyway, in 1934, <laughs> 10 years after yeah. Lennon died, a full yeah. decade later, mm. there was this thing called the Kirov Affair. Uh, Sergei Kirov, he was a Bolshevik yeah. leader in Leningrad, shot and killed by a gunman at his mm. office. And now mm. some historians have placed the blame on Stalin for the murder, suggesting that he had Kirov killed in order to use it as a pretext. 
Again, right. the, the, the archives that are available according to the most recent biographies on Stalin that I've read say there's no evidence to support that Stalin right. d- was directly involved. In fact, when he heard about it, he he was quite shocked, according to uh, the memoirs of the people who knew him. He, he was friends with Kirov. He, uh, he was quite sort of emotionally overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But he certainly used it to his advantage, nonetheless. Be- before you go on, let me let me just play devil ab- advocate. Yeah, there is no proof that he was in on it, that he planned it. Um, I'm just I'm just having a hard time picturing something, uh, an assassination on that level, being carried out without his permission. But having said that, that's just my own that's just my own paranoia. You know, reading what I've read about him. But yeah, there there is no proof. And a lot of stuff has come out about him. So there is a decent chance he was just a brilliant opportunist Opportunist when this sad, tragic affair happened. Mm. So he used his control over the secret police, the NKVD, uh, to basically say, look, we're under attack from within. Mm-hmm. And he started to charge many of the Bolshevik leaders with trumped up conspiracy accusations. And then he had them tortured and under torture. They gave up others who either were or were not really involved and probably none of them were really involved. I don't think there's much evidence that any of them were really involved in any conspiracies at this time, although a lot of them didn't like Stalin, including, of course, most famously, probably Trotsky. Right. Uh, he and he and Stalin have been on the outs you know, pretty much since the, the Civil War. Yeah. If um, I could just add... Yeah. Add something real quick. So, so like you said, Stalin was uh, Stalin appeared to be sh- shaken up, devastated by this death. The very people besides Stalin that were sh- shaken up, that were emotionally traumatized, that they were missing their leader because he was in charge of uh, Leningrad at the time. Those were the very people that were arrested. So here, here they are. They they heard the news. They're crying. They're devastated, and suddenly they're starting to disappear off the streets. And so, like you said, they're being taken to the gulag. They're being questioned. And I, I was able to read this in one biography. Stalin had established this even by 1934. His men wouldn't ask, why did you do it? Or what did you hope to get out of it? The only question they would ask was, who was in on this with you? They went right for that. They're gonna, we're going to get your name. We're going to get the other's names. And once these men knew they were pretty much doomed, then either Stalin or he would send a message and he would say, look, this is going to happen. You're going to die. But if you confess... If you signed this document, I will guarantee you that your family will go unharmed. I will take care of them if you do this. If you don't, I can't say what's going to happen. And some of those documents they were able to, and I don't know much about this, where you put them under the special light. And some of those documents, they actually found the blood of the victim on the documents as and they were being tortured right up until the point where they signed the document. So very brutal, very, you know, very intense what happened. But like you said, Stalin saw an opportunity. He was going to take this. He was going to purge a lot of people. They weren't enemies of the state. They were his enemies, but it didn't matter because he wanted to be the state. So they were the state enemies by that reasoning. He went after these people ruthlessly and he did a great job at it. Yeah. I like, yeah. Look, as, as we'll get into in a second, I think it's, a little bit more complex than they were his enemies. I do think he was trying to stack the the all of the positions with people that were fanatically loyal to him. But mm-hmm. 
Anyway, it, so it starts off slowly in 1934, relatively slowly by comparison, and uh, it escalates. It starts off with military and political leaders, and it escalates through to 1937, 1938, when mm. there are hundreds of thousands, uh, possibly up to 1.6 million people, uh, not just political and military leaders, but general population yeah. who were arrested or shot and accused of being uh, conspirators or enemies of the state. And they're known as Stalin's purges. Now, I used to think that Stalin's purges were when he was trying to lose weight quickly <laughs> and he would eat and then go to the toilet afterwards and stick his fingers down his throat and purge. And I was like, well, what's so bad about that? Oh, um, oh you got a case of the Stalins. Oh, <laughs> just go, go Stalin it out. Go Stalin it out. You're, you're going to be fine. Just here. Excuse me. Yeah. I've, I've got to go Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, funnily, well, not funnily, but ironically no. enough, as we're recording this in Turkey at the moment, mm. not President Erdogan is uh, having his own little purge. And again, yeah. we don't mean going to the bathroom and sticking his no. fingers down his throat. No. Uh, a coup obviously happened uh, about a week ago. We still don't really know the truth or the facts about who was behind it. There are accusations flying left, right and centre, right. but we do know that he's using it as an opportunity to he's round up down. thousands of military and judges. I think right. 1,500 judges have been arrested and accused of being part of some grand conspiracy. So he's Erdogan is using it to uh, cement his... Dicta, dictatorship, dictatorial powers over Turkey. So here we are all these years later and purges yeah. don't go out of fashion. Still, no. Well, here's my thing. I mean, one, I think we would all do that. You see an opportunity, you take it. Yeah, it's, it's overbearing and it's cruel. But I mean, do, do you really think there was a mass 1500 wide email? Okay, all you judges, are you okay with this? Yes, we're going to take this guy out. Okay. I mean, they... They might not like the guy, but they're not in on anything. It just doesn't happen like that. He's just taking this opportunity to clean house to so hopefully secure the rest of his life or the rest of his reign. I mean, we all we would all I would think that we, we would all do that. But it's just scary when it happens in 2016. You think that's behind us. Clearly, it's not. Well, they are probably the judges that were supportive of the uh, fraud and corruption charges against Erdogan over the yeah. last uh, 10 years. Anyway, let's not get into Turkey. So um, right. Stalin, had, as I said, hundreds of thousands of people were sent to prisons or he had them executed. It's known either as the Great Terror or in Russia, I believe it's known as Yetzovchina. Uh, the Yetzov phenom phenomenon after uh, Nikolai Yetzov, who was the head of the NKVD, the Soviet secret police. Ah, gotcha. Uh, the Politburo, the, the governing party of uh, Soviet uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, was, was giving orders for well, Soviet Russia, really, for anti-Soviet elements to be imprisoned in camps and executed. And these mm -hmm. anti-Soviet elements included the Kulaks, who were the uh, collectivized farmers, uh, right. and people who opposed the Bolsheviks. Uh, basically, anyone Stalin felt was a potential threat either to his leadership or to his 
vision for you know his own great leap forward in uh, modernizing uh, Russia and and the rest of the Soviet Union. Yeah, because because we all think of Stalin, we all think of the man who who was absolute master of Russia. That's true, but only after the purges. So he still has people who could potentially be in his way. They could get together and form a, an association against him. And he is taking this opportunity. Um, and he's been fighting ever since he left the cemetery. He's been uh, seminary, excuse me. He's been fighting. <laughs> sorry, cemetery. He has been fighting. He has been arrested so many times. He's been fighting the state. He's been fighting the Mensheviks. He's been fighting fellow Bolsheviks for power and position. To Stalin, this is nothing new. This is not extreme. This is not a radical thing that he's doing. It's just that he now has the opportunity and the reason, if you will, the excuse to do it on a massive scale. This is all that he has ever really known, and a lot of this he learned from Lenin. You need Terra in order to rule, and he is just doing it to the nth degree. So to us, it seems shocking, but to him, it's literally another day at the office. Yeah, so he also targeted nationalities, as they're known. The nationalities operation, also planned in Moscow by the Politburo, governed by the NKVD, uh, basically targeted Poles, Germans, Romanians, Latvians, Estonians, Finns, Greeks, Afghans, Iranians, Chinese, Bulgarians, and Macedonians. Mm. Uh, because they viewed all of these groups as ripe for recruitment by hostile uh, foreign powers. Right. Work them up. That kind of makes trouble for Stalin. That makes sense. Yeah, I'll talk more about that in a second, the whole idea mm-hmm. of the fifth column. Right. But anyway, so this effort, the, the Great Purge, started in the, started in the summer of 37, concluded in November of 1938. And based, I mean, it's hard to get real numbers on this, and right. there are wildly fluctuating numbers depending on, on which sources you read. But to the best of my knowledge, based on the most modern uh, sources, modern historians have, have got access to via the opening up of the archives in the last 20 or so years... Approximately mm-hmm. 1.6 million people were arrested and about 700,000 of them were executed. Damn. I, I cannot fathom, fathom those numbers. Half of these people will never be seen again, and the other half, what, disappeared or stayed in jail? Where were they worked to death? Who knows? But that is just phenomenal numbers. Well, you know, I know what happened to them come 1941. They were sent to the front lines. Yeah. Fight, the, fight the Germans, a lot of them. Right. Uh, an, an unknown number on top of the 700,000 were probably died in the torture, tam- torture chambers. Mm-hmm. So absolutely horrific. Um, uh, over sort of the year and a half that it ran, that main period, approximately 1,500 enemies were killed every day. Right. I mean, I just have a hard time... The, the this person on the street who you've picked up and you've thrown in the gulag and you're going to kill them. I mean, were they really against you, Stalin? And if they were, what the hell are they going to do about it? They don't have means to fight. All they have is a pitchfork. I mean, were they a threat? Uh, who knows? But I guess it really doesn't matter because he saw them as a threat and they were to be removed. And that's the end of that discussion. Mm. I just I well, just pick it pick it on the little guys. I just have a hard time seeing that. Well, yeah, the, the, he probably did have a a certain kind of twisted logic for this. You know, historians put his motivations for the Great Terror down to the following five things. He wanted to centralise power under himself as dictator. 
mm-hmm. which meant getting rid of anyone who he saw as a potential political or military threat. Right. He wanted to get rid of his known enemies as well inside of the political and military leadership of Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also paranoid that he himself and the Bolsheviks might be the subject of an armed revolution. It's important to keep in mind that the Bolsheviks had overthrown the Mensheviks and the provisional government themselves in a military revolution, the October Revolution. Um, So, you know, there was a revolution in in, uh, Russia, first of all, to overthrow the Tsars. Then there was Mm -hmm. a second revolution led by the Bolsheviks to overthrow the revolutionaries. (laughs) Right. And he was paranoid. Well, the Bolsheviks had always been paranoid that they too might be the subject of a counter-revolution, either by white Russians, the the pro-monarchist remains of the pro-monarchist, you know, Tsar supporters. Right. Or by other revolutionary parties that didn't like the Bolsheviks. I mean, of course, the Bolsheviks weren't universally loved and admired, despite the propaganda. No. And, of course keeping in mind that it had been a tough uh, 20-odd years since the revolution. Economically, mm-hmm. uh, they, they weren't doing as well as the, the, you know, the, the revolution had promised. They'd had famines. Food production was still low, uh, etc. Et Econo- pe- people didn't have the, the sort of economic goods and supplies that they needed. It was, it was tough. And so, of course, when times are tough economically, it, it, as we see in the United States right now, uh, it's a, it's a grand opportunity for some crazy motherfucker to come along and, and consolidate the great masses uh, right. and, and try and take power. And Stalin, you know, having done that himself as a revolutionary, was acutely aware of the threat to himself and his party that somebody else may come along and do to him what he right. had done to his predecessors. So... You know, he just launched a preemptive strike, man. Well, we're just going to yeah. take out one and a half million people to, sure. to remove any potential threat of our power. Jeez. Um, you know, he also believed, getting back to my five points, that was point three. Yeah. Point four, he believed he had about 10 years to modernize and industrialize the USSR before they'd be attacked by Germany. Mm-hmm. And anyone who didn't get totally behind and support his vision of collectivization and and economic great leaps was to be removed with extreme prejudice. And I think I talked about this in his bio episode. His view seems to have been in part, look, there's a hundred and whatever it was, 130 million people in the Soviet Union at the moment. Uh, They're all going to fucking starve to death or get killed by the Germans if we don't get our shit together if I need to execute uh, half of 1% of them yeah. in order so to save the rest, it's the old railroad uh, moral dilemma, you know? You know you know what I'm talking about? Mm-mm, what's that? Well, it's sort of the classic uh, moral dilemma in philosophy. Let's say, um, you know, there's a train. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas is tied to it. Hurtling out of control down a right. down a line, yeah. And there's a V in the line, and oh, okay. there's a lever that can make it go to the left or to the right. And on mm-hmm. the left, there's a person tied to the tracks, 
An old man, an old man. He's eighty years old. He's tied to the tracks uh, on the left, and on the right, there's there's nothing. It goes over a cliff. There's no one on the train. There's no one on the train. By the way, Um, you can throw the hook left, or if if it goes to the left, it'll kill the old man, but it will stop safely. If it goes to the right, the train will go over the edge of a cliff, but the man will mm-hmm. survive. Do you, do you throw the lever left or right? Right. So, but, but then I lose the train, and trains are expensive. And it's just one old man. Did I mention I'm a heartless, cruelest bastard? I you ever done the I... PCLR test, Ray? It's the, no. Uh, it's the psychopath test uh, rating. You should, you should do that. Just see I think it's you... called the Ray test S- in some circles. See if your score is as high as mine. Okay. I'm uh, <laughs> I, I consider myself challenged, sir. Yeah. I take you up we'll, on your we'll, challenge. We'll, we'll get the audience to do it. We'll all swap That's it right. <laughs> So, left, old man, right, it goes yeah. over a canyon. Yeah. What do you do? Oh, the, the, the old man. Got to go. Okay. Now, what if the train is full of 100 people? Yeah. Do you do left, left. or right? The old man, left, left. Right. Now, you go, well, that's heartless. You kill the old man, but it's it's... In the big you know, scope of things. It's, it's moral math, right? You save right. 100. You kill the one to save the 100. Stalin, right. he kills <laughs> 1.6 million to save 130 million. Now, I'm not saying that's justifiable. Right. I'm that's saying, the... quite possibly, that was the mental and moral math that Stalin did. And, and he actually, as we'll see in uh, upcoming episodes, that's pretty much how he described it to Churchill mm-hmm. uh, a few years later. Yeah. When they were discussing it. Anyway, um, so anyone who got in the way of collectivization had to go because he needed to modernize and industrialize before they were attacked, either by Germany or by the great capitalist powers. Keep in mind that the Bolsheviks believed, based on Marxist theory and also Lenin's mm. additions to that, that a socialist power would inevitably be crushed or attempt to be crushed by the capitalist mm. powers of the world. As I explained, yeah. I think, in one of our economics episodes or, or earlier, from their viewpoint, capitalist powers would not allow a socialist or communist power to survive because it set a mm-hmm. bad example for yeah. the people in the capitalist country. So they expected that, and he knew that they needed to ramp up their military and economic capability in order to withstand what he absolutely believed was coming, uh, an attack from somewhere. Fifth reason, oh, that is the fifth reason in my notes, yes. The Marxist-Leninist idea that great capitalist powers would attack a socialist country before it could establish itself. Yeah, and he said 10 years, and he was almost spot on. So good for you, Stalin. Uh, Just to throw some other other numbers at you, sorry. Um, 11 of 13 army commanders were shot during the purges. 57 of the 85 corps commanders were shot. 110 out of the 195 division commanders were shot. So he was, like you said, he was going after the military, the guy on the street, his political rivals, anybody and everybody who he saw as a threat. And with his mindset, that was a lot of people he was going after. Uh, And there's one more thing. And I I found this uh, reading about Lenin. Um, Marxism claimed to have unlocked the scientific mechanisms of history and to be able, therefore, to predict the future development of society. Declaring that human history was determined by class warfare, Marx predicted a worldwide revolution initiated by the victims of industrialization, the urban working class. This revolution would 
be, would lead to a utopia free of all class distinctions and free of the oppressive forces of national government and religion. The problem was Marxism and Leninism was vague on how this workers', workers paradise was to look or how it was to, to come about in its final stages. Unfortunately, that was left up to Stalin. Yeah, I'm going to take, I don't know where you got that from, but I'm going to take issue with it, at least in one regard. Um, don't you dare. No, go yeah. ahead, please. No, Look, please. Marx, Marx and Engels uh, were definitely not in the utopian socialist camp. Uh, they, in fact, sneered at the utopian socialists that had come before them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they believed that there was going to be a, a constant struggle. They were envisioning a world that was fairer with more equal distribution of wealth and political power. And they did believe that the uh, workers would rise up and demand that. But uh, that that article is right in that neither Marx nor Engels ever really mapped out a plan for how that would work and what would happen afterwards, how society would be governed. Lenin uh, Lenin took care of the first part of it, the the sort of quasi-revolution, as I've explained, I think, earlier. In an early episode, the revolution happened without him. Uh, he, <laughs> he and the yeah. rest of the uh, Bolsheviks were, were uh, what ended up being the Bolsheviks anyway, were uh, in exile. Yeah. But uh, he led them through the first uh, six, seven years of it. And then, uh, uh, unfortunately... Yeah. Unfortunately, Stalin took control. I read a great interview with Chomsky recently, actually, and he was um, asked the question... If uh, Stalin had died and Trotsky or one of the other Bolshevik leaders had ended up in power, uh, whether or not the Great Terror would have happened. And Chomsky Mm. said he didn't think so, that he didn't have a crystal ball, but he doesn't think any of the other leaders of the Bolshevik party even would have uh, ended up doing the things that Stalin did. Uh, not that he's a, an apologist uh, by any right. means for guys like Trotsky, who had his own fair share of uh, uh, human rights abuses during the Civil War, but um, he wasn't a Stalin. Anyway, the other thing, before to wrap up, the other thing I wanted to point out was something that played a role during the Spanish Civil War that mm-hmm. not only played a role in Stalin's purges, but in many other events over the course of the Cold War and, to an extent, still today. In October 1936, the Spanish general Emilio Mola, M-O-L-A, Mola, like hola, but with an M, who uh, started (laughs) effectively the, the Spanish Civil War, told a journalist that his four columns of troops were approaching Madrid where he was going, he was trying to take over Madrid, but then mm-hmm. he had a fifth column of supporters inside the city who ah. would support him and undermine the Republican government that was uh, in control of the city. Four columns of troops and a fifth column, uh, like a secret column, inside right. the city ready to overthrow it from within. So this, from this uh, interview, we, we get the term a fifth column. And ah. a fifth column was a big thing during the Cold War. It was the idea of uh, any group of people who could undermine a larger group uh, from, a, from an entire nation through to a city from mm-hmm. within, usually working uh, for an enemy group or an enemy nation. 
they, right. they you know they're like spies they have access to the the political mechanisms the military mechanisms technological mechanisms economic mechanisms and they will overthrow you from within right. and governments yeah, yeah and governments around the world became fucking paranoid <laughs> over this yeah. during the 20th century it was the reason that FDR had all of the Japanese Americans sent to internment camps during World War II. Yeah. It was the basis of the fear that led to McCarthyism, mm -hmm. that the communists had, were infiltrating American uh, political uh, and military and financial institutions. Yeah. And it was one of the things that Stalin was absolutely paranoid about that foreign intelligence agencies would develop a fifth column inside the USSR to overthrow the Bolsheviks. Now, you, you were mentioning before, what are the, the, the little people? Uh, yeah. and you're right, the little people uh, did get fucked over, the farmers. But that was his fear that the, right. the little people the would numbers. be, you know, what we would refer to today as being... Um, Ex, 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 no, what, what do we call it? Extremized? What do we call it when Muslims are... Uh, Radic radicalized. 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 That radicalized. was the word. Yes, mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah. That they would be radicalized. Um, yeah. And, you know, would overthrow. And, you know, people are... You know, there are, we have crazy politicians here in Australia that are convinced that Muslims are, you know, trying to take over Australia from the inside and... I'm sure you right. have the same thing in the US. Oh, I know they yeah. have it in the UK as part of the reason for Brexit, which we need to get onto. Shit. Yeah. Um, so the fifth column, that, that's a key point, I think, in understanding his purges, is his fear, rightly or wrongly, and I think I don't think there's any evidence that this was happening. Uh, now, later well, how on... Do you prove the, that you're innocent? How do you prove that you're innocent? Well, you can't. But, exactly. later, but here's the point. Later on in the Cold War, mm -hmm. this actually did happen. The CIA in particular, and British's and Britain's intelligence agencies as well, uh, became very, very adept at overthrowing sovereign <laughs> nations and their governments using fifth columns. Wow. And, and, and still, as far as we know, do it to this day. In fact, the coup in yeah. Yugoslavia would not be surprised if there was some CIA involvement there. So it, 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 it was a real threat it became a real threat but after stalin uh died i think and right. I, i'm not sure it ever was a real threat in russia when you if you read um tim weiner's legacy of ashes book the history of the cia he talks about the cia trying to overthrow russia during the cold war and trying mm -hmm. to uh uh send spies undercover right. spies to to infiltrate Russia, but they were so inept at it, they got caught. <laughs> Literally, the minute they would land, they would parachute in in the dark of night and oh, get man. and get arrested. <laughs> like, <laughs> not good. Yeah. Jesus. So anyway, um, but it was. I, I think it's important to understand the purges weren't necessarily just. Oh well, some madman just decided to randomly execute one point right. six million people. He had his reasons. We may we may not like his reasons. We may right. disagree with his reasons. But here's the point that that you know we, I want to continue to make in this series when we look at the actions of these actors. 
whether it's Truman dropping the bombs or Stalin and his purges or, mm-hmm. you know, Churchill. Or the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah, or the Holocaust, exactly. There are logical and rational reasons, at least from the viewpoint of the actors making them behind these things. Right, their point of view, right. And unfortunately, we tend, public culture tends to dumb down these people as being madmen or insane. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I, I would agree that they're sociopaths and or psychopaths. Uh, but, you know, it gets back to the, the, the railroad analogy I used before in some mm-hmm. instances. Their yeah. logic may be flawed. And again, you know, <laughs> as I always say, look, say what you like about Hitler. Right. But Where's at least going? he killed Hitler. So you've got to give him credit for that. You mean Stalin? No, I'm talking about Hitler. No, Stalin killed Hitler. You said Hitler killed Hitler. He did. Oh, maybe you're committed right, right, right. Oh, I see what you're saying. You were playing a deep game. I apologize. Please continue. Say what you like about Hitler. At least he killed Hitler. (laughs) So they go over your head, Ray. I'm sorry. Is it too late? Do you need another limoncello? No, I'm. I'm good. I just. I just don't want to add. What the hell? The was uh, plane going. It was my joke oh, going over your head. Went over my head. I, I apologize. Yeah. The only thing more dangerous in the fifth column, I think, and you can, and I think I can back this up with videos, are the uh, the Pokemon Go people uh, <laughs> yeah, running around. They are the new fifth <laughs> column. Getting into car wrecks, walking into trees, pushing each other. I saw a video. Those two guys were literally pushing each other so they couldn't control their anyway. Anyway. Mm. Oh, hey, that reminds me, Pokemon. Okay, so I got to tell you a quick, a quick. Mm-hmm. Funny story that happened at the beach, and then we can get on, okay? Mm. So we're sitting around the beach. It's it's uh, Tuesday or Wednesday morning. We're all hungover. We're just sitting around looking at, at our electronic devices or whatever, and one of the kids brings up Pokemon Go, and we start talking about it and getting silly and yelling, Pokemon Go! And it turns out that my wife's brother's wife's mother, sorry, I know that's complicated, who's who's recently from the Philippines, we started talking about this, Pokemon Go! And, and she gets a weird look on her face and she leaves the room in a, in a quick hurry. We're like, oh my God, were we too loud? Maybe she's hung over. So we felt really bad. But it comes up the next morning. We're like, Pokemon, Pokemon, woo, whatever. Let's go find some Pokemon. She gets up and she leaves the room again. And by this time, I've had enough of it. I'm like, okay, no one's ruining my vacation. So I call over Lanny, uh, her, her daughter, who's obviously a Filipino. And she, I said, what, what are we doing that's offending her? And, it, and she's really shy. She's really sweet. It took me 20 minutes to get it out of her. I started to beat her. She says, the word, pokey, the word Pokemon, and I can take Chris. He's, he's pretty small, um, her husband. The word Pokemon is very close to the word vagina. So if you take pokey, I think it's, no, I could be wrong. Pokey Co is your vagina. Pokey Mo is my vagina. So <laughs> What we didn't know. Oh, what, that what is we didn't gold. Know. Well, we were yelling, my vagina. No, yeah. your vagina. My vagina. Woo, vagina. <laughs> we were yelling out very closly the word vagina. And we we apologized. Wow. That we is apologized. good to know. Good so, to know. See, always we, learning stuff. There you go. That's yes. your uh, dinner party conversation <laughs> for this episode, folks. Your vagina, my vagina. Either way, don't yell it out. I'm, I'm done. Finishing up with uh, the episode. So um, these purges, by the way, 
Mm-hmm. People might remember that I, I mentioned in FDR's uh, bio episodes that when he became president in 1933, he was the first American president to officially recognize the Bolshevik government and mm-hmm. try and establish diplomatic relationship with uh, the Soviet Union. And he uh, sent a number of ambassadors over there to try and make some headway. But they arrived during the purges. Right? The purges Ooh. started in 1934. Ouch. And ran through to 1938, and so they would go over there and go, "Holy just shit, snacks!" And would step, turn around, step and, over that blood blood puddle, sir. Yeah. Please just step over it. Keep going. Yeah. So that didn't oh go God. very far. Um, by the way, Yetsov, the head of the NKVD, became a victim himself of the purges, oh. as so often it happens. Yes, the irony. He was arrested uh, in 1940, confessed under torture to a range mm-hmm. of anti-Soviet activity, and was executed. Yeah. Karma, as it turns Karma out, is a is bitch. A bitch. <laughs> as it also turned out, Stalin eventually realized Yetzov had done too good of a job. Right. Uh, Stalin couldn't fill all of the vacant positions with... Capable and trusted oh Stalinist God. functionaries. Oh, and eventually, totally. you know, he recognized that the disruption, all of these right. senior people who were supposedly driving, you know, the, the, the economy and uh, the military, was severely, you know, them being removed and not being replaced was severely affecting the country's ability to coordinate industrial production right. and defend their borders from. Yeah. What or you know that he realised as a growing threat uh, from Nazi Germany. Mm. By the way, do you know what his last words to Yetzov were, Ray? Um, I don't know the Russian translation. I'm guessing, my bad. No, uh, no. I okay. actually did track down an archival recording. The quality of it's not great. Obviously, it's very old, but I, I think you'll be able to make it out. Okay. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. And then, and then, 1939 happened. Yeah, yeah. World Mm. War II, and we'll get into that in episode 14. But before we we wrap up, uh, let's do a couple of things, even though the show's running very fucking late. Um, James Hingley. God, Brexit. He says, Hi, Cameron. I'm currently in mourning for the EU since the xenophobic morons that are my countrymen have decided we'll be better off hiding on our island from all of humanity. So my question to you two is, what implications slash consequences will this referendum have on the e- on the UK slash EU slash world in the short term and over the next few years? Go mm. wild, guys. I need cheering up before Scotland files divorce papers. Right. Keep up the great work. Much love. James from Little Britain. Right. Do you want to take a crack at this? I think um, you said go wild. I think one of the many football teams from England will do so well that parts of Europe will wish to serve under it, thereby bringing Europe under British domination vis-a-vis okay. the foot have, and the We don't have time for the jokes. <laughs> We're running no. out of time. Do you have oh, any okay. serious comments on Brexit? I do. I do. Basically, nobody had any idea this was coming. Nobody made any plans. 
Um, uncertainty is the worst possible thing there, besides war. Uh, there is for market. So Britain is going to pay a price for this now and into the future. And the, the more that people like Theresa Day and everyone else says that everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay, gives you an indication that everything is not going to be okay. They're going to have to find their way and, and kind of reinvent externally and artificially the deals they had with the EU. So Britain's going to go through a tough time, and it's going to be interesting to see how they react as a country. And it's also going to be interesting to see what Scotland does. So I don't think a lot of people wanted this. I don't think a lot of people planned for it. But unfortunately, it is a reality, and it's not going to be pretty for quite some time. You don't mess with economics and expect everything else to be hunky-dory. It just doesn't. History doesn't show that that is very realistic. Yeah, and my concern with it, uh, look, I'm, I'm definitely don't want to position myself as an expert like everyone else. It took me by complete surprise, yeah. but it's it's funny. Like we've we've obviously been studying a lot over the last few months about some of the things that led to World War Two into the Cold War, and as I've said many times, economic conflicts were a very significant component. Of uh, both World War Two, uh, leading to World War Two and the Cold War, and you know the, the the creation of the European Union or the European Economic Community before that, and we will get into this the creation of it down the track in the series in uh, a lot of detail. Possibly a better time to talk about this when we get there, but you know it, it was founded on the idea that by creating closer economic cooperation, which then led to closer legal and social cooperation between Mm -hmm. the countries of Europe, would make it more difficult for them to have more wars like World War I and World War II, which, you know, obviously cost tens of millions of lives and countless economic cost. And so far, more or less... It's been relatively successful. There have mm-hmm. been wars in Croatia and Serbia and, and different what we might think of as small uh, wars. And we obviously had the Cold War, which people from countries around Europe uh, got involved in to, to lesser uh, and greater degrees. But uh, all in all, we haven't had an all-out European conflict since the creation of the European Economic Union and the EU. I guess my concern over Brexit is that if it starts a trend where other countries start pulling out and Uh. the EU dissolves, that it's going to increase economic and social tensions uh, in Europe, and who knows where that can yeah. look? Just look at what's going on in Yugoslavia at the moment. Uh, what's been going on in Greece? Uh, what's going on even in in Russia uh, to a degree? In Crimea, Ukraine. Uh, very, we may think, oh well, that could never happen again. Uh, you know, yeah. that that could never happen. You'd, you'd think that uh, like before, purges. Well, before World War One, keep in mind that there'd been essentially. Uh, a century of relative peace in Europe between uh, the defeat of France at the end of mm-hmm. Napoleon's uh, career in 1815 through to World War One in 1914. 
Um, there have been, yes, minor skirmishes, but nothing like all-out European conflict like we saw right. under the uh, Napoleonic Wars. So do uh, you think before World War One, people were like, oh, look, it's been 100 years. It could never happen like that. We, we're, we're too sophisticated now. We're too civilized. Right. We're too, we have diplomatic envoys. We have treaties. We have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Economic and, interests, yeah. And, of course, if it happens again, lots of nuclear weapons are possibly involved. And I think the, um, you know, the justifications for pulling out, as I understand them, are fairly short-sighted and fairly uh what's what's a sophisticated way of saying people have their heads up their asses uh it's almost like a knee jerk reaction or a sense of I don't know. well here's here's one thing i i i read london wales and scotland voted overwhelmingly to stay in the rest voted to get out, which is where you got your 51.9% or whatever that... So I think the politicians just did a very bad job of explaining... Those who wanted to stay in did a very bad job of explaining or justifying or swinging the people to their to their vote. Not that that changes anything, but again, I don't think... Europe, uh, England, uh, Britain is in for a hard time based on pretty much economic reasons, and I hope no other countries leave, but we'll see. You know, I think the main argument for leaving was the amount of money that the UK sends to the right. EU every month. But it to, turned out to be a horseshit. But anyway, and, please continue. And also the ability of uh, European citizens to travel freely across borders. So a lot of mm-hmm. them, particularly when there are desperate economic times and some parts of Europe, Greece, etc., uh, are traveling to the UK. And then there's also this concern about Muslim European citizens uh, moving to the UK right. and there's this whole uh, anti-Muslim uh, feeling. But, uh, you know, I, again, I think it's short-sighted. Um, if you think the economic cost of sending money to the EU is high, uh, what do you think the cost of a decade-long potentially nuclear all-out European conflict is going to be to your economy, uh, but people, uh, right. you know, probably either don't think that's a reality or, or don't yeah. think that far ahead. But look, at, at the end of the day, I'm a planetist. I'm not a nationalist. Uh, I'm a planetist. I believe that I, I don't love my country. I love my planet. I believe mm-hmm. I am a global citizen of the planet Earth, a member of the human race, and my interest is in the survival of the species and the prosperity of the species. Because I don't think uh, we are citizens of something with artificial uh, or even physical borders uh, anymore. It's too easy. What what happens, it's what I read last night, in fact, is called the butterfly defect. What Mm. happens in one part of the world affects all of us. Uh, There's a war in one country, so the citizens in that country who are devastated by that war, jump on boats or walk across borders and move into other countries. And then we all have to deal with the impact of that. We can stick our heads in the sand and say and put our fingers in our ears and say, no, 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 refugees, we don't want you, we don't want you. But the reality is we live on a planet where people are going to go somewhere. Right. And, and, and if you dig, uh, the, if you scratch the surface, you might find that your country is in some way, maybe a large way, responsible for the conflicts that created the refugee crisis in the first place. And uh, Mm -hmm. people in your country have profited from those conflicts. 
The, um, the guy who introduced me to the term planetism, Dr. Peter Elliard, renowned Australian futurist, old friend of mine. I published one of his books 15 or so, or, yeah, 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know, called Designing 2050. Uh, he's going to be a guest on the show in a few weeks. We're going to talk to cool. him about not only the Cold War, but also Brexit and some of the things that are going on around the world and where it might be leading. So that should be interesting. Um, I think we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And the world is a smaller place than it was 100 years ago. We see, we see this happen whenever there's a, a, pan, you know, a fear of a, a viral pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, bird flu, etc. It's like, oh my god, it can happen. Start here, and then somebody jumps on a plane, and it spreads here quickly, and it could be a global phenomenon within weeks. This is the reality of the world that we live in today. We need to take an interest and some level of responsibility for caring for our brothers and sisters around the world. Their basic economic needs, their 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 health, their safety, their security, uh, and and not for purely altruistic, bleeding heart, yeah. pinko reasons, for purely <laughs> self-interested reasons. If we yeah. don't take care of these people and make them feel safe and secure and have some hope for the future, they're going to come and bite us on the ass. If you wait long enough, it will affect you. It doesn't matter where it starts at. Yeah. So that's my quick take on Brexit. Uh, by the way, the UK, one of the wealthiest economies on the planet, has done its fair share over the last few hundred years of extracting extreme levels of wealth out of other countries. Yeah. Uh, which is how it became wealthy in the first place. You know, it's a tiny little island nation like Japan, mm-hmm. um, tiny like Germany, like Italy but uh, was very early to the game of building mm-hmm. the Navy and was able to overpower uh, the underdeveloped countries of the world, extract their natural resources, extract their wealth, take it back home, You know, continue to build yeah. themselves into a mighty, mighty power. Uh, and still nearly got wiped out during World War II. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if it hadn't been for the Russians and the Americans, you know, the, the UK would probably be eating sauerkraut and uh, still... And funny salu- moustaches. Yeah. Yeah, salu- yeah, yeah <laughs> saluting the Fuhrer. Um, so just uh, you know, hypocritical, uh, short-sighted, fairly disgusted by it. Um, but I don't blame the people. And if you're one of the people that voted for Brexit, I don't blame you like i don't blame the people who are voting for donald trump right. uh, i think it's it's uh propaganda uh media manipulation people don't have time to think deeply about these issues they tend to be led by the nose by the media by uh certain political leaders uh who are trying to get them to do certain things act vote in certain ways in order to uh, meet the political or economic interests of the people leading the movement. Uh, Boris Johnson, you know, we know in the UK was one of the leaders of the Brexit movement. I think he's now the the foreign secretary. Foreign, yeah. After David Cameron resigned and Theresa May came in. So these people are pushing... He was the mayor of London before that. So they're pushing buttons in order to benefit their own careers and or bank balances, uh, as is Donald Trump, I'm (laughs) quite sure. Yes. As is Hillary Clinton, I'm absolutely sure. sure. 
Anyway, so that's an hour and a half. That's the show. I'm not even going to read reviews and thank the heroes because we'll do that in the next episode. Don't have time. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening. And thank Thank you for the support. We we do have a lot of people that have signed up in recent uh, weeks since our last shows to support the show. We've had a lot of great reviews, great feedback. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Honestly, I know I take the piss. Uh, from time to time, but uh, we we do we do appreciate your financial and moral support. Remember, one man's piss is another man's limoncello. <laughs> Somebody said Lisa, some Aussie woman sent yes, us an email. Saying that she hurt, was on Lisa. That in hurt. She saw limoncello behind the bar. She's like, "Oh, I've never had that before." She said, "Barman, I've never had that before." And a friend of mine highly recommends it. Um, I'm not a friend. And she drank it. She said it tasted like somebody had been soaking kangaroo balls in piss. I think. Uh, disagree, Lisa. Is, yeah. I love me some limoncello. I haven't had any in about. Oh, uh, well, actually, somebody I don't know. I had a somebody gave me a shot somewhere at some point. He had some in Vegas. We had some Did Vegas, I? Was it, that's where it was. Yeah. Remember, we were That's hungover. Right. You, probably, you probably don't remember because we were hungover. Oh, I do. We, in uh, Tim's room. Tim's he room, and we rapped. We, we yeah. rapped that song. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <sighs> but uh, I used to make my own limoncello. Uh, you know, seven or eight years ago. Good again. Yeah. Summer limoncello in the freezer for a few hours. You get it out. Yeah. Hot summer day. Icy cold. Thick. Nice. Oh, nice. Too good. Over some ice. Anyway. We're out. Here's the uh, here's the here's the outro. All right. Just so you know, we're out. <laughs> I'm gonna go get a drink, right? I'll be back in a minute. Me too. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. dying a slow death it was fun while it lasted all good things must come to an end that's right even British rule Fucking live forever.
Queen Elizabeth. She is. Man. She will be around a lot longer longer than Britain will be. After the uh, all out nuclear she's a robot. war, it'll be her, Keith Richards, and the cockroaches. Man. That's right. <laughs> they will be sitting back and laughing and eating Fritos because they'll survive. Anything in the vending machines will survive. So the Big yeah. Macs. The Big Macs. Yeah.